One of my least favorite tropes, one of my least favorite patterns in American movies today is whenever you have a bad guy, the the antagonist, the person who's doing all these bad things, somebody who has a sordid history, whenever you have a bad guy who converts to the cause of good, that bad guy will not live to see the end of the movie. Every time, every single time. Because we, as a society, don't know what to do with someone like that. So this person, and given the extreme scale of movies today where, you know, it's society-destroying events, this person has committed atrocities, right? There are people who are usually dead because of this person. And then when they see the cause of good and they convert their life, what do you do with them? Imagine them in the sequel. Are they going to be in jail after they convert to the cause of good? Do they have to apologize to all of the families they've destroyed? Do they have to rebuild the society they've destroyed? We don't know what to do, so we kill them. We say, well, maybe they can give their their life to this cause, and then we don't have to worry about what happens to them afterward. It's noble that they died for the cause, and also we don't have to answer difficult questions. It's sort of a natural human impulse. We don't really know what to do with people who have done bad and then try to do good. This is reflected in real life, outside of the movies, in what we see in cancel culture today. Somebody does something bad, and then there's always the question of the authenticity of their apology. But regardless, somebody does something bad, let's assume they authentically apologize, we don't have a good mechanism to let them back into society. That's just not our impulse right now. We don't know what to do with them, and so we sort of have this movement where we just shut them out. We're like, you can never come back. You can never do the thing that you did again. You can't be acting again, or you can't be a comedian again, or whatever else. You can't do this again. It's a hard thing. It's a thing that the church herself has struggled with from the beginning. This passage from the Gospel of John is unique insofar as some very important ancient manuscripts don't have it. Now, we have enough ancient manuscripts that we know this is an original part of the Gospel of John, but some ancient manuscripts skip it. And my professors in seminary, when they were trying to explain to me why they skipped it, they suggested that the manuscripts that are missing it were early lectionaries, early lists of readings to be read in church. And so even though they knew this was part of the Gospel of John, they were just like, yeah, let's just not read this one in church. Like, let's read the stuff before it and the stuff after it, but let's just not read this. Because even the early Christians really struggled with what it looked like to have radical forgiveness for someone. In the early church, there were three big sins. These were the three that would put you in the order of penitence for the rest of your life or that would kick you out of the church as the church struggled with, can you be forgiven more than once in your life? Like after baptism, if you have a major sin, does that mean that you're not forgiven again? There was a struggle in the church early on. Well, the three big sins were murder, adultery, and apostasy. If you killed somebody, if you cheated on your spouse, or if you betrayed the faith, those were the things that would basically put you in the order of penitence for the rest of your life. So to read this gospel in the church and to say this woman who committed adultery, when confronted, when put in front of the Lord, was given absolute forgiveness, 
even in the early church, this was an incredibly radical and difficult idea. Now notice, the reading doesn't mitigate the sin. It doesn't say, oh, there were extenuating circumstances, it was fine for this woman to commit adultery, oh, it's really all the Pharisees' fault that this happened, you know, she was entrapped. There are these theories floating out there, but the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel is just very blunt. This is a woman who did, in fact, commit adultery. But what happens? Well, when she is alone with the Lord, and he asks, Woman, where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, sir. He says, Neither do I condemn you. The radicality of that forgiveness is too soft if we make excuses, if we say, well, there wasn't actually a sin here. We have to confront that this was one of the big three sins in the early church. This was a big deal. And the Lord, confronted with that sin, says, neither do I condemn you. He gives her absolute forgiveness and then says, go and sin no more. It's an incredible moment. It's a radical moment. It's a moment that we have to engage with in our life. Do we believe that the Lord, confronted with our own sins, no matter how grave they are, do we believe that the Lord will forgive us those sins? Do we believe that if we come to the Lord with repentance, contrition, and amendment of life, that he will condemn us or he will accept and love us? I love hearing confessions. But in the confessional, I have had to forgive some very dark and deep sins, some very difficult stuff. The standard given to me by the church is not how grave the sin is. That's not what depends on whether you receive forgiveness or not. The standard of the church is, is this person contrite? And if they come into the confessional, no matter how horrible the sin is, if they come into confessional with contrition and amendment of life, I have no grounds to deny forgiveness. I have to provide that forgiveness because the Lord himself provides that forgiveness. The Lord himself, regardless of the sin, says, neither do I condemn you. What this allows the woman caught in adultery, us, any of us to do, is to move forward. Again, our society struggles with forgiveness. They don't know what to do with somebody who says, I'm sorry. They don't know how to reintegrate that person into society. But as Christians, that's our job. Our job is to accept the forgiveness of people and to find a way to bring them back into the society because they have contrition and amendment of life. It allows us to leave our sins in the past and to move forward in Christ. Now, an interesting corollary to this is our first reading. Because in our first reading, the Lord says, Remember not the events of the past, the things of long ago consider not. An excellent message regarding our sins. If we go to the Lord, if we receive forgiveness, we have to leave our sins in the past. There are many people I, I talk with in the confessional and out of the confessional, they've been forgiven for their sins, but they struggle to forgive themselves. The Lord says, remember not the things of the past. Leave them behind. But what's fascinating about the first reading is that it's not talking about sin when it says that. When Isaiah, when the Lord says this through Isaiah, 
the Lord is talking about the Exodus. Because the things he mentions before are, Thus says the Lord, who opens a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who leads out chariots and horsemen, a powerful army, till they lie prostrate together, never to rise, snuffed out and quenched like a wick. He's talking about the Exodus. The Lord has split open the sea. He has destroyed the army of the Egyptians who wanted to keep the Israelites enslaved. And he says, forget all of that. Leave all of that in the past. He's telling us not just to leave our sins in the past. Leave our victories in the past. Even leave those good things in the past. Why? See, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He is doing something new. And if we're stuck in the past, whether it's the past of our sin, which has been forgiven, or even the past of our victories, of the, of the lods that we've had, if we're stuck back there, the Lord cannot do something new for us. But he desires to do something new for us. He desires to take us where we're at and to bring us into a bright and beautiful and holy future. Whether our past is good or bad, I hope we can desire that. The newness of the Lord, the freshness of the Lord, the power of the Lord going forward. This is what St. Paul is talking about, the very last line of our reading. Just one thing, forgetting what lies behind but straining forward to what lies ahead. I continue my pursuit toward the goal, the prize of God's upward calling in Christ Jesus. If we cannot center ourselves in the moment and look forward to the goal, if we stay rooted in the past, again, whether that past is good or evil, we cannot strive toward the goal of Jesus Christ, the new thing that God wants to do in your life is always going to be founded on Jesus Christ. The place that he is calling you to is a place that is closer to the Lord, that is informed by the power of Jesus in your life. You have to leave behind the past so that he can do something new. At the beginning of the second reading, St. Paul says... I consider everything as a loss because of the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have accepted the loss of all things, and I consider them so much rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In the pastor's note this weekend, I wrote about decluttering, something worth spring cleaning. We're kind of in that era. It's something that's very close to my heart. I love to declutter. It's important to me. But the reason it's important to me is because it allows me to focus more on mission. If I have all of these things that I'm trying to maintain all the time, all of these things that I have to dust and find places for and that are just distracting my attention all the time, it's harder for me to remember what's the mission, what's important to me, what am I focused on. But the decluttering is more than just physical things. The decluttering is also mental things, memory things. It's not to say that when we enter into a life of Christ, we forget everything. We're like, oh yeah, all of my family and friends in the past, they're gone. They're out of my life. We're done. It's obviously not what God is calling us to do. 
But what he is calling us to do is to make sure our heart is rightly ordered, to make sure the thing that takes up the most of our attention, the thing that is the goal toward which we are striving, is the new thing in Jesus Christ. He is calling us to make sure that as much as our past informs us, we are focused on the mission Jesus has for us now. Your life right now is infinite potentiality, which is to say you have infinite possibilities ahead of you. Regardless of where you are in life, old, young, regardless of whether your career is solid or not, none of that matters. You do have infinite possibilities ahead of you. You are not defined by your past. You are defined by your adherence to Jesus Christ, by his power and presence in your life, and the new thing he wishes to do for you and in you and with you going forward. A final note. Speaking of St. Paul, remember, St. Paul was the great persecutor of the church. He stood by and gave assent to the stoning of St. Stephen, the first martyr after the ascension of Jesus. St. Paul went around and arrested and presumably killed many of the early Christians. And then one day, on the road to Damascus, he has a conversion experience. He shows up, he receives baptism, and suddenly the guy who went around killing everybody is asking to be recognized as a Christian. Now imagine being an early Christian, knowing friends, family possibly, who were arrested and killed by this man. And then he presents himself and says, I am a new man in Christ Jesus. I am converted to the Lord. Please accept me as a brother. That's an incredibly difficult idea to confront. That would be an incredibly difficult thing to do. After all the things he has done in the past, he just shows up and expects to be part of the community? Well, yes. Yes, in fact, he does. That's what we as Christians do. If somebody comes to us with contrition and amendment of life, if they say, I'm sorry and I want to do better, we have no excuse to condemn them because the Lord himself refuses to condemn them. 